Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, guys, we are so excited to have our guest today. We have with us uh, Julie Wright and Dr. Shane Lewis. They are both from the um, Inner Mountain, our uh, friends out out west, and, and they work in high reliability operations. Julie is the director of high reliability operations, and Dr. Lewis, who's also a general surgeon like myself, is the senior medical director of high reliability operations. And uh, Shane, it's really good to have another surgeon. We, you know, it seems like all the doctors that we have are internists, and, and yeah. so I feel, I feel really good today. But uh, I don't know. I'm feeling really threatened. I'm feeling a little out. Yeah, we've got to level the playing field here a little bit. <laughs> Once in a while, a surgeon's got to be able to play outside the OR. So is but, that is that how you level it? Two surgeons versus one internist? Is that is that level? Well, that's what it takes to compete with the mind of an internist. Um, well, guys, up. once again, welcome uh, to the podcast, and and like us, you know, thank you for being here. It's it's always great talking to you guys. Yeah, we're we're delighted to be with you all, and I've enjoyed uh, the interactions, opportunities we've had to meet with with you all and your team and. Uh, Dr. Mason, um, you know, we've been inspired equally by by you and your team and the people of Baptist um, and the mission that you all have and that you live by. It's quite inspiring. Well, well Shane and, and Julie, when we were out there uh, several months ago and we had a great visit and, and you know, we learned about y'all's structure and you guys have you have an office of patient experience. And then underneath that, you have quality, you have coding and documentation, but you have a separate high reliability operations department, which, uh, you know, I found that very interesting. And tell us tell us how that came about, how Intermountain decided to have a, a, a separate department devoted to high reliability. Yeah, you know, this is something that really it's evolved to this, right? Because a lot of these things have been segmented. And in healthcare, I think we've been um, at risk of, of siloed care in so many ways, both with our patients and how we respond to care as a system. And we found a lot of silos to be broken down. Several years ago, there was an initial um, change and shift to become one intermountain to really knock down the walls between us. And that was under our previous a CEO, Mark Harrison, who really had a great inspiration to bring us together and help us to see where we could actually look outside to be measured by others and see what what we need to do to be better. And that inspired us to look and see what other silos did we have. And a lot of this work that we do in the Office of Patient Experience had been siloed. It'd been siloed into care sites, um, you know, and owned by by small groups of people. And so we found that it was done differently all across, which is the antithesis of high reliability. You know, wanting to have a standard way of doing things, we found that with our 22 hospitals, there were at least 22 ways in which safety, quality, experience, um, infection prevention, and all of the other things that are in the portfolio of the Office of Patient Experience were done. Too much variability. And so it's been 
my career's delight to work with Julie and to help to bring together this area of high reliability. Um, and we think the high reliability really defines everything we do, but Julie and I are scoped and tasked with um, a certain part of that high reliability that we've we've collected together. Julie, you want to tell them kind of what our scope is of high reliability? Sure. Thanks, Shane. Really, you know, as you look at high reliability, it is doing what you mean to do every time. And so as we talk about safety, quality, experience, um, really encompasses all of that. And and we as we move forward with this, we realized that not only does high reliability apply to the safety of our patients, it also, of course, applies to the quality and the outcomes that they have. But the one place that it's not often thought about is with experience of care and patient surveys and how often our patients um, deserve to expect that we will treat them the way we intend to treat them all of the time. And there's a huge intersection between patient experience and patient safety. As we look at our failures and experience, those processes and um, the times we fail and don't do what we intend to do, they're also almost always the same causes of our safety events or our, you know, readmissions. So it all ties together so seamlessly when you, you know, zoom out and look at the big picture. Yeah, taking this lens of high reliability to help us to look at the patient experience to the quality of care delivered has helped us to, to look at you know, when did we not perform at our best? When did we not deliver on our expectations and the patients, consumers, members' expectations? And so that lens has helped us to kind of shift things a bit. Um, you know, as as doctors, we're we're a little bit more touchy than than people might think. Maybe not touchy Philly, but we're a little bit more touchy mm -hmm. than people may think. You know, we don't like to be told that we're wrong. And um changing the lens by which we talk about this and putting it into the framework of high reliability and delivering on the best all the time seems to resonate better with us because we all want to be best. We all want to perform at our very highest. And so it's helped us to shift that. And with that's required a lot of careful thought about the words we use and the way we show up to all of this important work. That's really great information. And I want to learn a lot more about what y'all do as a HRO. Um, we've talked about high reliability organizations on here before. We had uh, Dr. Leslie Jericho from the Cleveland Clinic, I think it was last summer, maybe come on and talk about um, leadership mindsets for HROs. Um, my question is, how do you know an organization is a high reliability organization? You know, what what can you from the outside, I guess, uh, look at to, to you know, because a lot of people are striving to be a high, highly reliable organization or at least have certain pieces in place. But but how do you know an HRO when you see one? Yeah, it's a big buzzword out there that and yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a key thing that we're all trying to strive towards, and then yet, what is that definition? Um, one of the things that Julie and I talk a lot about is psychological safety and how that is a foundation to the impact we want to have. 
So I think as one measure is if we don't have true establishment of psychologically safe teams and environment and organization, then I don't think you can define yourself as an HRO. Um, and so that foundation is is clearly important. Um, but then also, you know, there's there's the shift from the reactive to the proactive. And, and Julie has really helped us to do this, to move from, from responding to when things don't go well to now thinking way upstream and getting up on that. Um, there's a diagram that, that we look at sometimes that talks about this, and there's this tipping point when we move from a place where we don't really do it very mindfully to we do it only when bad things happen, or yeah, that's right. We have a systems approach to this. Um, you know, when when things don't go well, we have a structure around it. To now, this is embedded in our culture. This is how we proactively do things. This is a leadership strategy to everything we do. To now, it's a generative thing where it's really pushing this all the time. And so, I think um, high reliability. Yeah, it's it's an aim for all of us, but hard to define it completely. Another aspect of that, I think, along with and psychological safety has to come first, but you know it when you see it by um, their a high reliability organization is a learning organization. They are always striving to say, what can I do better? How can we better meet the needs of our caregivers, our patients, our communities? And we reach out to organizations like Baptist Health, or, or they reach out to us and we share, this work is so important that we shouldn't be competitors when it comes to safety and quality. We need to figure it out together. And so I think that's a hallmark as well as those organizations that are constantly looking outside of themselves to say, what are others doing well? How can we learn from them? and incorporate that? And then how are we measuring that and sustaining that and making sure that we are doing what we intend to do all the time and that what we're doing and intending to doing to do, intending to do is the exact right thing for our patients and our caregivers. Yeah, you, you talked about psychological safety. Um, I recently heard a talk uh, by Dr. Thomas Lee. He's the uh, he's a chief medical officer for Press Ganey, and he talked yeah. about trust and he talked about the pandemic, the political climate that that we have really not only lost the trust of our patients, but we've also lost the trust of a lot of our team members uh, and, and how moving forward. That is going to be so important for us to to regain that trust. How how does that fit in with a um, with an organization that's wanting to be or practice high reliability? How important is that trust? Yeah. Well, you know, I completely agree with that statement. The pandemic's been really hard on all of us, and that trust comes from very consistent uh, showing up for our caregivers very consistently, especially when they make mistakes. And that's one thing Shane and I have worked on prior to the pandemic. And it really helped, I feel, carry us through the pandemic in a way that our, our caregivers did trust yeah. that we were working to do the right thing, even when things got hard. Yeah. I 
it's it is its foundational. I think Dr. Lee is spot on that this trust is so important, and organizations have have struggled through the pandemic and then post pandemic, um, if there is a post, um, to to figure out how do we how do we get that back or how do we reestablish it, and we're really proud of the fact that actually as measured against um, other many other national organizations, our our caregiver survey of the culture of safety and psychological safety was actually steadily improving throughout those years. And that was because there was a lot of groundwork ahead of that. We, you know, psychological safety is kind of a topic people don't know unless you're like us, right? That we read about it and we study it and we talk to people like Dr. Lee about it. But instead, we've changed the name of it to caring and learning. Seems like that was something that people just could put their hands on and touch and feel and understand better. And we deliberately hardwire this into everything we do and everything that our teams do to show up with a caring, empathetic attitude and that the order of these things mattered, that you must develop and establish deep, caring trust before moving into the learning zone, because that opens people up. Again, you know, we don't like to be wrong, and so if you show up and you say, hey, what happened, even if you say it with a nice tone, um, it, it comes across as, oh, wait a minute, you're asking me what I did wrong. And so we come up with our defenses and our ex explanation. And, and oh, my gosh, if you ever ask a specialist in a specialty you don't know or don't work in, they'll just landslide you with all kinds of jargon that will just go over your head and you'll just have to go, oh, OK, yeah, I guess that's why they made that decision. But instead, if you show up and you say, gee, Dr. Lancaster, how are you doing? I can't imagine this must be really hard on you and your team. Um, how are things at home? How, how are you? How's your patient doing? How's their family? What do they need? Is there anything we can do for them? Um, are there any immediate needs of anybody? And then after you've sat with them in that space of really caring, then you say, hey, in service of you, Dr. Lancaster, Dr. Mason, in service of you and your patient, what can we as a system learn? What can we improve upon? Oh my gosh, the floodgates open up and they start to really tell you all of the things that didn't go as they hoped they would have. And even their personal foibles, the things that they themselves wish they would have done differently and better. I find that those things were held back and continue to be held back if you don't show up very intentionally with that caring and learning. And so, yeah, I think the speed of trust, it matters. Yeah, we often talk about the art versus the science of medicine. High reliability is the same way. Yeah. There's a, a, a strong science behind high reliability, but there's also an art to it. And if you get them both right, that's when you really create that psychological safety and can learn. Yeah, I think that art, Julie, is, is love and empathy, right? Correct. Um, and that's what we've tried to lead first with and try to ask people to use first and coach to that because um, that makes a difference. Well, and I think that knowledge came out of personal experience for both of us. I, my background is in nursing as well. And we've all had experiences when we, when we messed up. We're humans taking care of humans. And um, that burden of perfection is high in healthcare and adds to burnout. And I think we've both had those experiences. Yeah, the burden of perfection is far too great for anybody to hold alone. Um, Julie had a really, a really 
um, awesome recent experience with one of her family members um, that made our work come to life. And I wonder, I know that you're asking the questions, but could I ask Julie a question to share that with us? Because absolutely, it really sure. Me. It just happened this last week, and um, it's really touching how this work comes full circle. Oh, thanks, Shane. Yes, one of part of uh, the work we've done to get to that art of high reliability is establishing processes with our human resources department for caregivers to have a safety pause. After something unexpected or traumatic happens, they are allowed to take some time off without using their paid time off balance. And um, I have a daughter-in-law who is a brand new nurse and um, was working um, in the cardiac ICU at one of our children's hospitals, had the first time one of her patients passed away. And it was, it was expected, it was, but it was hard as a, as well, that was her first time going through that. And um, she called me on her way home I, to tell me that she wasn't going to work the next day because they were allowing her to have a safety pause. Now, I was once a young nurse and I was a pediatric nurse and I know how I felt when my first patient passed away and how difficult it was to not just go on with the shift, but also come back to work the next day without having a little time to process what had happened. And it um, was really, really fed my why I do this work to know that it was affecting when a, a person I loved and cherished, that she was able, we've built this culture where that happens, not just if it's a safety event, but even with expected outcomes that feel traumatic to our caregivers. Yeah. That's that's a really great story. Um and gets to what Skip was describing earlier before we jumped on about how y'all are an HRO with empathy, it seems. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about y'all structure. So y'all have a dyad structure. Uh we've talked about it on the program before. Um, but tell us how that works. Tell us, you know, how y'all function as a team in that dyad role, and also how your HRO leadership fits in with maybe your your CQO or your CMO and the work that they do. Um, we talked earlier about breaking down silos. You know, how do y'all make sure that y'all are all working? You know, I guess synergistically. Yeah. Well, you know, this dyad relationship is awesome. I do whatever Julie tells me to do. <laughs> Otherwise, she you know gives me a noogie on my head, and I'm starting to bald back there. I'm convinced it's from her. <laughs> Um, but maybe going back in the time machine would be helpful to think like before we had these dyad types of um, leadership to this work, um, how it was then versus how it is now. And Julie knows that because she worked in both spaces. And then we can uh, take on the, the second parts of that question as well. Julie, you want to because you, you lived both ways. Yeah. So prior to our reorganization in 2018, we we did this work primarily. We worked very closely with our medical directors um, the, in the hospitals. We, um, you know, and and did a lot of that work. But so much of the quality safety experience work involves physicians and APPs, and um, they're critical members of the team to make it work. And so we did that. But of course, those medical directors were busy. Often they were, um, you know, just like you, Dr. Mason. You're the medical director of a facility, you're also your 
chief medical officer, and often they still maintain some practice time as well. And having a dedicated dyad partner to have those difficult conversations with physicians to support them through safety events or different quality activities or when we have experience concerns and and having a peer do that and working lockstep with an operational director who guides the ins and outs of the operations and leads the actual boots on the ground teams doing the work has made all the difference in this. It, it also, as we talk about psychological safety, demonstrates trust and flattening of that hierarchy. Yeah. So often when people don't speak up or don't, you know, push back on a position um, or anywhere there's a hierarchy in um, a, or a differential in power, that is important for them to see us model that and lead together because it empowers others to do that. Yeah, it, I can't imagine doing it without a dyad relationship like this. Um, one, because Julie's phenomenal in the way she does this and their organizational ability to help us navigate these things, but also it's just having the different mindsets and opportunity to, to take these different perspectives. You know, as much time as I spend with our physicians and APPs and working through difficult things or coaching to, to uh, opportunities, a lot of time is also spent with our clinical high reliability managers, AKA risk managers. We used to call them risk managers. We got rid of that name because mm. we didn't like it, but, um, you know, whose risk are you managing? Mine, the hospitals, the patients, you know, what, what's this risk all about? But clinical high reliability managers, I spend a lot of time with them where they'll, they'll ask, Hey, you know, this, this doctor seems real prickly or gee, you know, they're not being responsive and I'm able to help to offer some translation, like Google translate for them, what that means or what's going on. And let's, let's, let's role play this. Let's figure out a different way to show up. Um, and ask them in a way that is really mean, meaningful to them and is non-threatening. And as this team has really grown their capabilities, they are true professionals and they care deeply about it. As they've de developed those skills and ability to show up with a little bit more empathy and understanding of that physician mindset, I think it's really helped accelerate the responsiveness and the growth mindset that we have. You talked about that leadership mindset um, earlier, and I think that's key. Yeah, and part of that goes back to the way we were trained, right, in school. Um, you know, as we're out trying to cultivate a culture of psychological safety, you know, and in teaching our team and others to speak about that, you know, and and translate into position, part of it is is reflecting with them and with others across the organization about the way we were trained. Because Shane, what did you learn in your residency? Well, I I was trained, you know, Dr. Mason. I never wanted to show up in M and M, right? I didn't want to be the guy presenting M and M and exactly on the hot spot because um, I knew I was gonna be grilled, um, and that happened on rounds too. On rounds every morning and every afternoon, you you wanted to be the the person who was most right or quickest to have a right answer, especially if you're the low person on the totem pole. Because if you didn't, it meant the question got escalated to your senior resident or the chief resident, and boy, they were looking at you you like you better get this right, Shane. Otherwise, you know. Yeah, you didn't want to get that look. 
you're doing all the hemorrhoid cases for the next month because I'm not getting that question. And so it was all about being right. And then you show up your first day in clinical practice and you put your shingle out there and patients show up and they expect you to be right and have all the right answers. And we try that. We try that really hard. Um, but the fact is, we're not right. Um, you, know, you had to be the most right, the most brilliant to get into the schools, to get into the residency you wanted, to get into the fellowship you wanted, all of those things. But nurses were trained different. Nurses were trained at the bedside uh, to advocate. Yeah, and we're, we don't turn a patient on our own. We rarely get pe- patients up on our own. We are trained to work as a team and to to garner our resources in um, in service of that patient. And so that combining those two different mentalities and helping to translate for each other has been really effective. And then Dr. Lancaster, to, to answer your other question, I am partnered, um, have a very close partnership with a quality director, the infection prevention director, an advocacy di- director. We centrally lead these teams that are locally deployed at the care site level. And so all of our teams know what to expect from their leadership because it's starting from the top down. That alignment is from the top down, that breaking down silos. And so as we set up our processes, um, for example, when a safety event comes in, we need to get it reviewed. And we have worked on processes to align with the peer review process. So physicians and others aren't being overburdened by reviewing advocacy cases, quality cases, and risk cases, often two or three times on the same case, right? We're able to streamline those, simplify, and find efficiencies and also benefit our caregivers to simplify what we're asking them to do. With Before that, we were often have our quality team go ask have one initiative they're working on and the safety team another initiative and experience another initiative and infection prevention another initiative. In this way, we can work together before those are even rolled out to say, not just say this is how we can incorporate safety, all equality experience in all of these, we can also uh, simplify that message for the front line so they're not feeling like we're asking them to do a lot of yeah, yeah. One of the yeah. worst things is to ask a um, a doctor, an APP, about um, a care that didn't go right, or you know they had, had a bad outcome, or even an infection, and ask them about it five times by five different people. So we've we've worked as we've centrally led this and then locally deployed it. We've worked to really streamline that. And one one thing Julie mentioned, peer review. We've actually changed the name of that too. It's peer learning because peer review, who wants to go in front of the review committee? Who wants to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it has that connotation of, I don't know, a parole review board maybe. Sure. <laughs> but instead the learning opens up the mindset to, oh, hey, this is just about us continuing in our excellence journey. And that's what we all went into medicine knowing we were going to do. We knew that medicine was a lifelong learning career. And then somehow we turn it into regulatory and fear-based and all of this. We got to get back to that mindset of learning, and that helps us to to connect to our why. And I think it helps us to make sure the dots are all connected well in this. Sure. Yeah, I love y'all's dyad model because, you know, 
doctors don't think like nurses and nurses don't don't think like doctors but but when you when you bring a team like a dyad like you guys have when you when y'all come together that is really where the secret sauce is and uh it's it surely is working well well shane and julie we unfortunately we come to the end of our time um you know we could sit here and we'd love to talk with you guys all day but um on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, just thank you guys so much for uh, being on our podcast. Uh, we love our Intermountain uh, friends. We've learned so much from you guys, and uh, we look forward to. I look forward to coming back out to uh, to Salt Lake City soon. I hope, and I uh, hope you guys will be uh, be coming out here soon as well. Yeah, we look forward to it. Thank you so much. We've we equally have loved our relationship and interactions together. We learn from from you so much. Thank you so much, and and thank you to all our listeners. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem the episode for CME credit.